Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the Renaissance Nude. My first guest, Thomas Krenn, is the lead curator of the Renaissance Nude at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Over the course of more than 100 paintings, prints, and sculptures, the exhibition examines how artists represented the human figure between the early 15th and the early 16th centuries. Krenn was joined in curating the show by Jill Burke and Stephen J. Campbell. They were assisted by Andrea Herrera and Thomas De Pasquale. The Renaissance Nude is on view through January 27th of next year. It is accompanied by a fantastic, richly readable catalog published by the Getty. Amazon offers it for $61. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Carl Cusero discusses nature's nation, American art, and environment. But first, Thomas Krenn, after the break. On Tuesday, December 4th at the Getty Center, Dr. Kelly Jones discusses the global reaches of performance art during the 1970s, focusing on projects by David Lamellis, Felipe Ehrenberg, Lourdes Grobet, Adrian Piper, and Senga Nanguti. Dr. Jones is Associate Professor in Art and Faculty Fellow with the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu slash 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery. A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas Gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the Medieval Gallery all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Thomas Cran, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I want to start with something that falls within your time frame, which is 1400 to 1530 or so. 
but that is not in your show, and that is the simultaneity of Giberti's Baptistry Doors, specifically his presentation of the sacrifice of Isaac, in which the nude boy Isaac was imagined as having the heroic proportions of Greek sculpture, which, as you note in the catalog, is an oft-told story, with a less-told story about how, at the about the same time, at the court of the Duke of Berry, the Limborg brothers were also presenting nudes, and that these nudes were also kind of small. So what about that decade, that simultaneity, and the scale might suggest to us about the moment at which we enter this exhibition? One of the things we're trying to do with the show actually is open up our sense of what the Renaissance nude is. And whereas the Ghiberti is, of course, an iconic work, we think of the we really associate the Renaissance nude with Italy and the Italian Renaissance. But in fact, as we're defining it in this show, uh, which is quite broadly, there were nudes being developed, even some out of the classical tradition, outside of outside of Italy, and certainly at the court of France, where there's, I'm not sure scholars agree about this, a humanist or a proto-humanist culture that really takes root under Charles V at the end of the 14th century, and includes things like the Duke of Berry by the beginning of the 15th century, assembling a collection of antiquities, which artists were looking at. And they were smaller in scale than what was available to Ghiberti and what was beginning to be looked at in Italy but they still created nudes based on ancient models. So there was, if you like, a smaller tradition. And in fact, this tradition was a bit aborted by the civil wars in Paris within a decade or so. But there were these other traditions of trying to develop the nude out of a classical vocabulary, which the show was trying to bring into the conversation. I should note here, just for the sake of defining the nude, the title of the show is The Renaissance Nude, not The Renaissance Female Nude. There are men and women in the show. The familiar idea, I think the one that's taught most broadly in art history classes, is that the Renaissance's embrace of the body as a subject was a Europe-wide rebirth stemming from uh, European artists and other humanists looking at the body-centric work of antiquity. First, do you accept that idea? Is that is is that still the idea? And second, how do we square that idea with the dominance of the Catholic Church? Well, again, we're trying to broaden that. We're actually trying to broaden the definition of what is a nude, actually. So we still argue that that holds, that that is true, that the the art based on classical art and based on these new humanist ideas is essential to our understanding of the nude. But at the same time, there's a interest in the study, the observation of nature and the recording of nature. And it's not just the human body, it's it's the it's plants, it's animals. In fact, it's a more it's even something that's bound up with scientific investigation that starts probably even before 1400, and not only in in Italy, but also in Northern Europe, that also probably fed such images as the nudes of Jan van Eyck. Uh, which clearly, we don't know exactly whether Van Eyck was working from the live model, but he clearly must have been studying one where one the bodies of human bodies 
for his Adam and Eve in the Ghent altarpiece, for paintings. Uh, he actually had a reputation in Italy as a painter of the female nude, and uh, there's a famous, a famous work by him that was in a collection at the court of Urbino. Um, there's a female nude that was in a collection in Genoa in the 15th century. In the exhibition, there's a painting by Memling, which was made for a Bolognese patron. And th these works, we don't know necessarily were based on classical models. They were greatly admired, and they clearly were based on some kind of natural observation, part of this sort of new attitude. So the exhibition really tries to take that into the whole picture. There is a common belief, I think, maybe a dated belief, that the female nude in particular, but the nude in general, travels from Italy up into Northern Europe. Is that how it worked, or was there an independent Northern European tradition of the nude? We're definitely arguing that there is an independent Northern European tradition that encompasses Van Eyck, Roger van der Weyden, Hans Memling, that actually was collected in Italy. It isn't to say that there weren't Italian nudes that were being made in Italy in the 15th century, but in the 15th century, the focus was definitely on the male body and the male nude. And when these, the practice of life drawing begins in Italy in the second half of the 15th century, it's definitely the male body that's being studied closely, at least that we have documented that we know about. And in Italy, it's really only at the beginning of the at the beginning of the 16th century, and it is the very beginning of the 16th century, the female nude becomes an important subject, and it actually takes off fairly quickly. But in a sense, we're really sort of dating that tradition from, from that moment. So I would argue that some Italian artists were looking at the Flemish models uh, and that it did have an impact. But I think what's more important is that in the 15th century, the male nude is more important in Italy. Female nude is probably more important in France than to a degree in the Netherlands. And by the 16th century, the female nude becomes basically important across Europe. Well, so then let's let's start in the north. What prompts the early 15th century northern interest in the female nude? This is an insufficient answer, but one of those factors, I think, is that clearly Van Eyck's art is steeped in observation of the visible world. And we know that, for, I mean, we admire most, you know, the way he painted the reflection off a golden goblet or the reflection in a mirror, those incredibly scintillating details which deal with the play of light across surfaces. But he clearly must have also been, as as I said, arguing, studying on some level, the ability to create the character of human flesh, the to catch to to capture the reflection in an eye. So that was ongoing. So one could argue that it's a, it's a reasonable uh, that the the nude body, female nude body would have been a reasonable extension of those those interests. Let's dip down into Italy for a moment then. What prompts the Italian interest in in the male nude? Is it as simple as antiquity and classical sculpture, or is it more layered than that? I think there are a variety of justifications for that. One is actually this, I think, the notion that of the of the perfectibility of the male body. There there was this notion, this scientific or pseudoscientific, we would call it a pseudoscientific notion, or even a spiritual notion that the female body was derivative from the male body. So that insofar as there is a notion of man's perfectibility within humanist culture, that would begin with the male and the male body. And on the one hand, on the other hand, I think there does appear to be, and Jill Burke writes about this in the catalog, there does appear, appear to be issues about the 
the notion of women undressing before you know a male artist it's simply at least it, that that attitude clearly changed in the 16th century but it appears in the 15th century there were more scruples about it than at a later moment is that about the church i mean that's part of it that's part of the story or it's about faith yes so we're talking when you're installing the show. So I haven't seen the show yet. But in the catalog, there's a section titled, um, the, the catalog is not chronological. It's broken into um, subject sections. And the first subject section is Christian imagery and the development of the nude in Europe. And, and in this section of, of, of the idea, there are lots of nudes in circumstances that, that any of us looking at them immediately recognize as, as coming from the Bible. And maybe pick one or two examples, if you like. How did artists kind of come to address the Bible, maybe by even mashing it up with classical sources such as Ovid? I think, in in a sense, I think the biggest impact on Christian religion and the sort of new ideas about the body, probably really, that really does come more directly from classical art. I th I'm trying to think of, the, the, actually, the wonderful examples, among the wonderful examples in the show are this. Saint Sebastian's, particularly the Italian ones, where this was there was this understanding of of Sebastian and his narrative. Uh, he was the, he was one of the saints who was evoked for protection against the plague, and there was a connection in the narrative of Apollo of the Greek god Apollo with the plague as well, and that ended up being conflated, if you like, in the Sebastian narrative, so he becomes thought of as this kind of Apollonian beauty. And you begin to see in the 15th century, and especially in the second half of the 15th century, these extraordinary images of the martyr Sebastian being shot through with arrows. He's tied to a column, but he stands there in this kind of impassive, often in this almost godlike manner, that clearly is evoking Apollo, Apollo in the sense of Classical, classical statues, classical imagery of Apollo, the beautiful contrapposto. Uh, even though the flesh is pierced with arrows, there's still a kind of flawlessness to the flesh. And we actually have a number of interesting examples of that. The Antonello de Messina is a particularly wonderful one. The Bourdichon one, which is probably based on an Italian example, which was made for Anna Brittany, is a wonderful example in France. And then there's this extraordinary one that appears in a Sacra Conversazione, a small silver gilt plaque by Moderno, so the beginning of the 16th century, which is a classic Italian iconography of the Virgin and Child with saints. St. Sebastian is one of those saints, but what's extraordinary there is not only is Sebastian this kind of Apollonian figure, but he's shown actually completely nude. He's shown as if he were a Greek statue, as it were, which really actually is pushing the iconography of Sebastian about as far as it can go, and probably got away with it because it's a very small-scale plaque. It was made for uh, a great – probably for the great humanist Cardinal uh, Grimani, and really was probably the kind of, kind of cabinet work that could be shown to a small and select group of individuals. But uh, it really shows how Christianity was, from the beginning, really was absorbing classical ideals, and it really transformed the character of Christian imagery. And another example of that in the show, which is quite wonderful, is the jumbo, the image of the Man of Sorrows, late medieval devotion. It was increasingly private, and the and private individuals were encouraged to really meditate on 
the, the story of Christ's sacrifice and death to redeem the sins of mankind. And a popular imagery that was an aid in that devotion was this image called the Man of Sorrows, which is a liminal moment. It's not in the Bible of Christ after the crucifixion, so his wounds are visible. There's still blood issuing from the wounds, where he basically displays his body and his wounds to the viewer. It's a figure isolated from the narrative. It has no, usually has almost no elements of setting in it. And the exhibition has several examples, and perhaps the most intriguing are the one by Giambono from around 1430, and one from much later in the century by Marco Zoppo, both Venetian images, but the absorption of these classical physical ideals into uh, image making completely transforms the character of Zoppo's Christ from a figure who is emaciated, spent, exhausted, presenting his body after his ordeal to the faithful against Zoppo's image, which is athletic. His wounds are minimized, and he's this sort of, frankly, cheerful, heroic figure. Completely, this sort of Absorption of the classical artistic ideals completely transforms the character of this very, very powerful devotional image and makes it essentially something entirely new. We'll have images of all of these works on manpodcast.com. Uh, you've got to go, especially for the Antonello de Messina of Sebastian, which is amazing. <laughs> uh, it's from Dresden. It's, uh, it probably doesn't leave Germany a whole lot. You mentioned the Bordeschamp. Clever listeners will have thought, oh, that must be from a manuscript. And you have included a number of, of nudes from manuscripts in this show. I think Angelino, to Angelinos, this especially won't be a, a new idea. Christine Chaka's 2012 show on uh, early Renaissance Florence argued for there being uh, a significant fluidity between uh, manuscript illumination and painting, both in terms of artists, studios producing both, and indeed for a, a uh, similarity of subject. Why did you choose to include manuscripts here? One reason is actually because, in a way, this is how I sort of became interested in the subject, because I had been working on France in the 15th century. And in fact, we had bought the the, the Bordichon image of Bathsheba in this show, which is a pic image that I'd known for a long time before we'd bought it. And even then what struck me as a rather unusual devotional image because this Bathsheba is presented as such a siren, uh, even her, basically her genitals, I mean, she's she's in a fountain, but even her, her genitals are visible before the, uh, under beneath the water, if you like. And, and it seemed like an unusual, just simply an uncharacteristic, uh, uncharacteristically exotic and frankly erotic image for a book of hours, and I couldn't, and I was always puzzled about why that was the case. And I simply started doing research on that, and really discovered that there was a whole tradition of the female nude that hadn't really much been discussed. But it's mostly in manuscript illumination, and and there's a reason for that actually, which is quite sensible, but maybe surprising, which is that in the 15th century in France, manuscript illumination remained a supreme art form. There was certainly other forms of painting. There was wall painting. There were tapestries. There were I mean, there were panel paintings, but there was a disproportionately large number of very high quality, paint illuminated manuscripts. And basically, the best painters of the time, if they were worth their salt, were manuscript painters. And even Fouquet, who probably in his heart of arts was a painter, 
was a painter who who most of his the work that survives actually is in manuscript illumination because that's what his patron wants. So in fact, to trace the nude and to understand the nude in France in the 15th century, you simply have to deal with that. And the great thing is you get to deal with artists like the Lomberg brothers, who's represented in the exhibition, Fouquet, and then and Bourdichon as well. So um, actually, I have to say, I'm very proud to say that the Grand, the Grand Sur of Anna Brittany, which is Bourdichon's most famous work, and which is considered one of the greatest manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale, is in the show, and it's, in, it's lent for the first time ever. It's the first time ever outside of France. And it looks great, I have to say. These Sebastians and this Bordeschamp, Bathsheba, you know, you mentioned how frankly erotic they are. Was there representation of the nude in this period that was just a step too far for the church? Do we know anything about how how the church considered some of these images or even how or if they communicated limits to artists or patrons? Actually, there is a lot of clerical railing against the nude almost from the beginning of the period to the yeah, to the end, actually. And it <laughs> went, good it know, did. <laughs> and it goes into, you know, it actually, there's actually a wonderful epilogue to our catalog about uh, the, Michelangelo's Last Judgment, because in a way, a lot of the, a lot of the clerical distress over the nude, and other, there were other things going on in the Renaissance that upset the clerics as well. Uh, but certainly the nude was one of those things. In a way, it, it happens kind of sporadically, from, as I say, from the beginning of the 1400s right into this period. But then by the middle of the 16th century, with the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, it kind of it kind of explodes. And in, in the catalog, Tom DePasquale makes a really interesting analysis of, the, of that uh, dynamic. But, you know, Jean Gerson, who was one of the great theologians in Paris at the beginning of the 1400s, is complaining because you could buy images in the churches, you could buy images of of nude figures. San Bernardino in his writings, San Bernardino of Siena, is writing and complaining about, incite the devout to sin by their very sensuality. And we don't know exactly what images he was necessarily talking about, but this is the moment, for example, of the great uh, polychrome crucifix of Brunelleschi, which is, unfortunately is not in the exhibition, but when these one these wonderful, highly naturalistic images of Christ, completely nude or nude with only a loincloth, uh, were being created, and they are uh, very beautiful and very sensual images. Well, let's get out of the church and, and on to other topics, uh, just because I, I got I mean, there are other parts of the show to do, but also because um, sometimes it's just hard not to laugh at how some of the church's points of view haven't moved much in five or 600 years. Indeed. I mean, one of the inspirations for the show, I think, was the sense that some of the anxieties that are expressed then, they still exist today. And in a way, I mean, it's a question, but a question we raise is to what degree is the response to, new, to, to the new then a mirror of concerns today? In a way, your show also kind of charts the development of the reclining nude and includes what may be the f earliest surviving uh, representation of a reclining nude from about 1426. What is that drawing and what might it tell us? The, the Pisanella drawing probably belongs to an older more medieval tra tradition of luxuria, although I think you make a good point that, the, that these reclining nudes become a hallmark of, of Renaissance art, more, I would say, from the beginning of the 16th 
century more with the great Giorgione, Titian, the great Dresden painting that I'm sure you know of the reclining Venus, of which then Venus, uh, Titian himself does many different versions and then use, then Cronach does these versions and they actually really become kind of ubiquitous throughout Europe. The Pisanel is definitely an antecedent of that, but I would say the tradition really takes root uh, again, in the 16th century, when the female nude becomes a, such an important subject, in, especially in Italian Renaissance art. I, I should add that the Pisanello drawing is in the London version of the show, not the Getty version. It's in the catalog, and we'll have it on manpodcast.com. You know, one of the things I noticed flipping through the catalog was that the show kind of demonstrates, mm, not sure what the word is here, the advance or the increasing commonality the subject of the reclining female nude becoming a standard. That's probably it. it did, do you think it became an art historical standard by the 16th century for reasons that were within art? Artists knew other artists were doing it and moved the thing forward or for reasons outside of art? Interesting question. I think I would say that probably it flourished within a kind of humanist culture to which the artists belong and the patrons belonged. And I think there's no doubt that the sensuality of these images were part of their appeal and part of their success. And there is no doubt that there were male patrons eager to uh, eager to enjoy them. And I, but I think it belongs within this wider culture of mythological subjects that allowed artists to explore, in the guise of mythology, erotic themes with which weren't merely, I don't know what the word is, for, for lack of a better term, eye candy for patrons, but also I think reflected on, flattered, flattered the patrons in, in other ways. For example, this theme of the loves of the gods, we have a wonderful painting by Correggio in the show, which belongs to a series of paintings uh, made for Federico Gonzaga, a great ruler of uh, northern Italy in the beginning of the 16th century, where the argument has been made, it's made in the catalog, and I think it's an important argument that these kinds of images about the loves of the gods are about the conquests of Jupiter and the extent, the lengths that he went to disguise himself in order to basically succeed at seducing various women with whom he'd fallen in love. Stories are pretty basic. But, th but this same, that kind of narrative was certainly seen as, was certainly flattering for the right patron who also wanted himself, who wanted to have a sense of his own virility and his own uh, vitality. And I think actually there's a kind of interesting perspective here on the European man of the Renaissance, uh, which is, I think, in a way not very surprising, where these kinds of images actually reinforced this sense of of male virility, which was very, very much, which is a very, very important part of identity at the time. And it's not an idea that's, I, I say, I don't think it's an idea that we we can say has disappeared in the interim. But it's another way in which I think it gives us a perspective on our own culture today. There are a number of pastoral nudes in the show, including of men. How does the pastoral nude come about? Is it as simple as a mashing up of one tradition of of the body with um, an emergent tradition of landscape, or is there a little more to it? I think actually it really comes out of a literary tradition, that it comes out of a revival of interest in classical literature and pastoral themes, the theme of the escape to the countryside for leisure, which always 
which also involved romantic pursuits. I think that's a big component of it. So it is definitely definitely something that grows out of kind of a humanist culture. One of the things I think that's quite interesting is, and, the, and the, again, the exhibition tries to make this, this point is, I'm not, I don't know if we would call it a pastoral tradition, but there's a humanist tradition that links landscape in the nude as well in a kind of parallel way, because specifically in Germany, and it's a tradition that starts, the literary component of that tradition starts already in the 15th century and actually even ties into a, a German medieval literary traditions about the importance of landscape and the character of the German landscape. Uh, Tacitus was one of the classical authors that was reintrodu reintroduced to Germany in the 15th century, and he he talks specifically about the character of the German landscape in a way enabling it to become a kind of artistic subject. And in both the uh, actually a whole group of, of works by German artists by Cronach and Baldung and Durer in the exhibition, there are these wonderfully evocative landscapes, which are specifically meant to be evocative of the German landscape and also of these kind of wild men and fauns and figures that were thought to have inhabited specifically the German landscape. So they're not quite the same narratives that existed in Italy, but they're the same body of interests. And and again, one of the things we try to do repeatedly in this show is show how, whereas the subjects may not be identical between North and South, there are certain themes that really are identical or closely intersecting that show these kinds of parallels, parallel developments. Another of the questions of, of art making, shall we say, investigation that the show investigates is how to depict the flawless human, as your colleague Jill Burke puts it in the catalog. This wasn't just a practical question, but also a question that was philosophical and theological. Is this a question that goes back to the beginning of the Renaissance, even before your show, or is this something that, that really springs up later? Well, I think a lot of the, I'd, let's say a lot of the means to, to achieving that perfection really are, coming into focus in the 15th century, specifically, for example, although Vitruvius was known in the Middle Ages, there's there's renewed attention. I think this, there's, a, and I'm not the expert on this, but there, there's a specific text that's rediscovered in the 15th century and becomes a new focus of attention. And you, you really get artists started to explore this notion of what is the perfect set of proportions, which is an essential part of this notion of the ideal figure. And and actually, again, in the exhibition, we show there are a number of there are actually a number of of uh, artists who explored this idea uh, throughout the 15th century and into the 16th century, starting with a little known this uh, figure Takala from the mid 1450s. There's Francesco de Giorgio. There, of course, is Leonardo da Vinci, and then. A lot of the Leonardesque ideas are being published in the 16th century by people like Cesariano, who which is represented, who is represented in the show, and then finally there's Durer, who really was devoted to this whole notion of ideal proportions, you know, from the beginning of his career, represented by the great Adam and Eve engraving in the exhibition, and then right up to the, right up until his death, the book that's the book his his treatise on proportion, actually was published posthumously shortly after he died. And Durer actually, in, in a way, gives the sort of most interesting rub to all of this because he finally says there is no ideal, there's no one ideal body. 
there's so many different physical types of bodies that you need to come up with a sets of ideal proportions for each of them. And he's not, again, talking about two or three, but I think it's several dozen that he devises a set of proportions for. And, and an example set on, on one female figure uh, is in the show. And actually speaking again to your question, that sort of question, one of the things we try to do in the show, one of our arguments is that one associates the sort of ideal of the Renaissance nude with the with the timeless and and with the ideal with a as it were the perfect figure, but close examination really reveals that there there were many ideals of that perfection, and actually there were many different just as there were many different kinds of nudes, and and one of the things that this exhibition really is about was that range of ideals and that range of physical types that came to be represented as nudes. Uh, in this period. You mentioned Vitruvius. It was his 1520, it was in 1521 that his On Architecture was translated into vernacular Italian that, that you referenced earlier. We'll have a sheet, a page from that book uh, that's in the show. The examples of, of Leonardo and, and, and the Durer you mentioned kind of all show artists um, and image makers I don't know how else to say this, kind of reducing the human form to something grittable, to something mathematical, projectable. And you can see how it would be an idea that was both pursuing an ideal, but also useful for art makers who wanted to work at larger scale and 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 were going to grid an image. Right. And actually, it, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I mean, I I think the images people can go look at in the show or on manpodcast.com, you know, you can, you can see why gridding an image might be more complicated than maybe it's it's taught to art history students now. <laughs> no, exactly. No, it's quite it's quite fun. This try to try to fit your try to fit your ideal proportions into a circle uh, and a square. It's um it's like it's complicated. There are. Twice in the show, Battles of Nudes. Um, there's a Pagliolo Battle of the Nudes from 1470 and a Mantegna Battle of Sea Gods from sometime before 1481. Why on earth did Battles of Nudes become popular? <laughs> well, I think one one reason may is likely that these kinds of subjects did come from Roman sarcophagi and those works were available and were known of uh, the 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 battling warrior nude battling warriors is actually a classical theme certainly uh Montaigne had that in mind when he was when he was creating that engraving uh, the, the great engraving you mentioned uh Polywolo may have had that in mind although the result is actually quite different because he really is he's he's really doing this up close uh, attempt to really understand elements of anatomy, I would say, especially the musculature, uh, male musculature, representing the figure from every possible angle. And there have actually been a variety of theories exactly what battle that represents. Uh, Jill Burke talks about that a bit in the catalog, actually suggesting that the subject may actually be sub-Saharan in origin. But ultimately, I think probably the answer is that it is a, it is a classical, it is a classical tradition. It is a wonderful, and the other the other issue here is it's a wonderful opportunity to represent the male anatomy under duress. And actually, with that, I, that, that, that people don't always when people think about the ideal nude, they don't always think about this aspect of it. But artists were very focused on the ability to represent that that quality, the figure in motion, the figure in in the figure straining, the figure making dramatic gestures, mastering all of those aspects of 
human expression through the body uh, were on the table at this time. And so it was a wonderful, you know, the battle subject was just a tremendous artistic challenge. There, you know, one of the things in the show that I found that my my mind has wandered back to over the last few days is uh, a question that your colleague Stephen J. Campbell, who's at Hopkins, asks in his essay. He points to artists such as Durer and Pitormo making portrait drawings of them of themselves, naked or near naked, and what that might suggest to us about how artists of the time and perhaps even society considered the body. I, I can't think of a whole lot of other periods since when artists made portraits, portrait drawings of themselves nude. So why then? I think scholars are still debating that question. There's a, uh, Ulrich Pfister actually also writes about this in the catalog. Actually, let me say, I'm going to give you first my view on this. In the case of Durer, one of the revelations for me at working on the show was he, he as an artist of the nude, the sheer tirelessness of his explorations of the body, different types of bodies, the bodies in different situations. And certainly he's an artist who has an unusual preoccupation uh, with his own and with, with himself actually as a subject matter. There, there's the famous, there's the great self-portrait as Christ, which is so well known. But they're actually in addition... Um, there is an addition to the this uh, full-length nude, well, three-quarter length nude self-portrait that you mentioned by Durer. There are actually several uh, nude self-portraits or, or self-portraits of himself as the man of sorrows, essential, essentially their nude figures. Again, he frequently casting himself as Christ, but showing his body when it is in less than ideal state, you know, flabby. Uh, there's one self-portrait drawing where he's actually shown himself being ill. So... He was incredibly interested in the the naked body in general, and he used himself as a subject repeatedly. So it's certainly part of who uh, he was as an artist. But he was also trying to explore extremes. There's a, there's a there's an etching in the show. It's called something dull, like composition with five figures, but it shows a man of kind of Durer's age, a kind of athletic looking figure seated on the ground with one knee up, one leg under that knee, his his hair, his arms up, pulling away at his hair. He's clearly in a state of anxiety. And there are figures sort of floating around him in the background. And no one's really quite sure what the subject is, but it feels very dreamlike. It's almost as if he's having some moment of torment, coping with what's what's going on around him. It somehow seems to me very, very personal. And I guess this is my long-winded answer is that something about Durer's exploration of the nude, and he also does the female nude in very interesting ways, but especially the male nude, that seems both very far-reaching and somehow very personal. I mean, no one has suggested that this uh, etching of this anxious man is self-portrait, but in a way, if you look at the body of his work, it seems very personal. I want to end with two questions about asking why you chose to include certain things or groups of things in the show. And one is metals. These are um, kind of bronze. You know, they're called metals, but I, but, but maybe the word that makes that puts them in mind in a contemporary context is the word medallion, but we'll have images of a couple of them on, on manpodcast.com. Manpodcast Why metals? How do they fit the story of, of the nude between 1400 and 1530? 
Well, actually, it, in a way, it was one of the it was one of the important early vehicles for the exploration of the nude for for incorporating the nude as a motif, and they were invariably portrait medals, which would have on the reverse often quite obscure allegorical, symbolic, mythological subjects in a functioning in, in an allegorical way, nude figures, and clearly. They became part of persons. Usually, these the images on the reverse are meant to be some kind of commentary on the character, or uh, the power, or the nature of the sitter. So they were incredibly interesting, and they simply were relatively. Again, it was Pisano. The show gives a lot of attention to Pisanello, who's who was an artist who also drew the nude. We think from life at a very very early stage, and and again part of the part of this point was so many people associate the origins of the nude with Florence and with Tuscany. Pisanello actually was doing really interesting things, copying antiquity, making drawing from life, making copies after the antique, creating this new genre of metals um, that incorporates these incredibly beautiful, if small-scale nudes. But he's really in a very, very important part of the history. So I guess the short answer is we thought it was important, but it's an interesting, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a key part of the story that also helps to broaden out the way in which the nude kind of originated, not necessarily always in the places that you think of immediately, but it not not only in different parts of Europe, but in different parts of Italy. Well, that kind of leads into the the other show decision question I had. There are definitely a handful of artists who are, you know, overrepresented is the wrong word, but are particularly present in the show. In the north, that's maybe Cranach, Gossart, Durer. In the south, that's probably Pisanello and maybe to a lesser extent Antico and Donatello. Was that just the way the ball bounces in terms of loans, or is there a point that y'all wanted to make about those artists? We definitely wanted to make a point about Pisanello. I think at Durer, it just seemed that there was such a range. Um, that we didn't go in it thinking, well, Durer, we're going to have Adam and Eve, right? And we were going to have, you know, we, we knew we'd probably have the, the men's bath was a given. But the deeper and deeper we got into it, it just seemed like there was such a range of original imagery around the nude in Durer that, that, that it was, you know, that it was important. There, there's definitely, I'm aware of this, there are definitely some imbalances. I mean, there, we actually have four works by Gosart in the show, which might seem like an imbalance, but they were just so... There was an issue of quality, right? And you know, there was also an issue. There is, a, there were certain limitations that we we created in the kind of narrative structure in the show, which is to say, we wanted to or organize it by themes, and we were looking for themes that we could compare across Europe. And so we went to those artists who were producing those themes, or we could show, well, that. This is going on in Italy now, but actually at the same time going on in the north, independently of it, there is the same theme, and this is how it's handled there. And sometimes it was actually the case, well, that was going on in the north because they were looking at it, at it in Italy. And sometimes actually it was the case that that was going on in Italy and they were actually looking at something in France or in the north. We, we do try to make the point that certainly ultimately Italy ends up triumphant in this narrative, but but that the, the sort of origins part of the story is really more complex, that there are these kind of nexus of things going across Europe, which are really, really interesting, sometimes overlooked and really we wanted to make clear. So those kinds of limitations, I think, probably 
ended up creating the what may seem as that that we gave might, might seem like disproportionate emphasis for this artist or that artist. And I think I think there was really no way around that. Yeah, Gossart was the most interesting one to me. I there's there's some pretty great Gossarts in the show. <laughs> no, thank you. No, no, that, we're we're very proud of those pictures. <laughs> so marvelous, Thomas Crane. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Princeton University Art Museum curator Carl Cusero. Along with Alan C. Braddock, he's the co-curator of Nature's Nation, American Art and Environment, an eco-critical take on the American landscape tradition shown through works by 19th century painters, Native American basket makers, photographers, and more. The show's on view at Princeton through January 6, 2019, before traveling to the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts, and then to the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas. The exhibition catalog was published by the Princeton University Art Museum and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 50 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. By the way, we have a ridiculous number of images on manpodcast.com this week for each segment. Don't miss it. Carl Cusero, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, good to be here. So for those of us who aren't in the Academy, what is eco-criticism and, and how is it different from history, writing or doing history? Uh, eco-criticism, I guess you could say, is, is different in that it's inherently interdisciplinary. It's the study of uh, cultural products, uh, first literary and, and more recently uh, visual culture, with a focus on how nature is represented and how environmental concerns are treated, how the human non-human nexus is engaged in works of art and works of literary art. Might One way of getting, of accessing those ideas might be through the work in Nature's Nation. Fairly early on in the show, there's a section called Colonization and Empire, The Order of Things. And there are two works, except for that they're both by Peels, wouldn't necessarily seem to fit in a show together. Charles Wilson Peel's portrait of George Washington at Princeton from, from your university's collection. It was painted in 1783-84. And Raphael Peel's Still Life with Steak, 
from 18, 16, 17, how do they fit together both in an eco-critical construct and within your show? Well, that's a, a great way to, to come at getting at what eco-criticism is. So I would step back and say that uh, if there is an overarching narrative to the show, what it's really doing is showing how in the last, say, 200 years, the way that humans have construed the relationship of themselves to the rest of the world and really understood how the rest of the world is structured has undergone a sort of 180 degree flop from one to the other. In the beginning, and really going back to Aristotle, you had the notion of uh, a chain of being, which was a, a rigid, hierarchical, God-given and therefore perfect and immutable structure of being. And that gets uh, sort of promoted and, and uh, changed a little bit through various religious cosmologies through the, the Middle Ages and gets into the age of the Enlightenment with people like Linnaeus who put a sort of scientific veneer on it and become very uh, taxonomic and typological, but are still dealing with hierarchy and structure and the static and immutable nature of it. And the reason that those two paintings you mentioned are in a way juxtaposed in the show are to suggest that that mode of thought, that, that sort of epistemology of, of how things work has implications well beyond nature and into culture such that in the hierarchy of genres, the clear number one is history paintings and sort of paintings of men doing, and it's always men, doing great things. And that's very much embodied in the work of Charles Wilson Peale's George Washington at the Battle of Princeton, where he's theatrically waving his sword and sort of clearing the field of the British soldiers who are trying to take over Nassau Hall on Princeton's campus. So that painting is about 15 times the size of the work of his son, Raphael, whose still life with stake is at the other end of that artistic hierarchy. It's a still life depicting not only non-human but non-living things and therefore occupy the lowest rung in that chain of being. So the idea in putting the two together is to suggest that there is a, a kind of a manifestation of this hierarchical way of thinking well beyond constructs of nature into not only art, but also politics. The Peel is from 1822. This is the beginning of the great American, at least on this continent, the American period of taxonomizing and botany brought in by, by Asa Gray, whose, whose taxonomizing of American flora is still the backbone. Of, of American taxonomy and uh, kind of that kind of approach is also represented in your show by works by illustrators such as Audubon. The show goes from there to, to this mashup of portraiture and history painting to a couple of portraits in which we see the portrait subject in the foreground and the great outdoors in the background. Um, a John Smybert from Denver and a great uh, Ralph Earl from the Met. And I think Earl, more than anyone else, any other portraitist in the late 18th century, begins to to, to bring the, the outdoors forward. What, what might be the eco-critical take on these kinds of indoor-outdoor, outdoor pushing forward into the closer-to-the-picture-plane portraits? <laughs> 
there are, in fact, three. You, you mentioned the last two, and I would just add uh, that there's a one even before the Smybert, which is sort of mid-18th century. There's another painting in this little concatenation of, of objects that is important in this continuum as well. And, and the continuum I'm speaking of is the one wherein across the 18th century in North America, if you look at the backgrounds of portraits, and we can't look at landscape representation apart from the backgrounds of portraits, because it didn't really exist separate from them. There was no market. And as this discussion of portraits revealed, people were actually rather afraid and uh, threatened by this sort of unruly wilderness that people felt needed to be tamed. So if you step back to the the very first of those three, it's a, a painting by Justice Engelhard Kuhn from 1710 of a little girl in what is supposed to be Maryland, but she is set in front of what looks like the gardens of Versailles in the background, a very formalized, elaborate garden with fountains and statuary. And the point there is that there's no way that that was Maryland in 1710. This was the artist's sort of wish fulfillment version or vision of, of what this place might come to look like. And even so, he depicts the girl who is the subject of the portrait rigidly separated from that already domesticated world, but still very separated from it by a, a big stone balustrade. And if you take that as, as the sort of starting point uh, and then move forward to the Smybert you mentioned from the middle of the century, it shows a woman who is occupying a sort of liminal space, which is neither in nor out, uh, which is something you see a fair amount of in the portraiture of this period. She's seated and she seems to be half in an interior room. But if you look to the left, there's a landscape uh, sort of arrayed behind her. And she's actually using an iconographic gesture of a pointed finger to indicate by pointing her finger at the natural world that there is a kind of symbiosis between the two, between the human and the natural. And yet it's still something that is separate. And moreover, the landscape that she's gesturing towards is is pretty overtly generic. And moreover, doesn't make a lot of sense given that she was from Bermuda. And what it shows is a sort of New England pastoral scene. So there is a gesture being made increasingly towards the human and the natural coinciding and coexisting more productively. But it's not really, as you suggested, until Earl and painters like him at the end of the century where you begin to see a real imbrication of the two. And the Earl painting that you mentioned shows Esther Boardman, who is the child of one of the founders of the town of New Milford, Connecticut, which in the portrait is seen in the background. And Esther is seated on the ground as opposed to in a chair and sort of separated from nature. She's in nature and she's bound to it by color and and various compositional devices in the painting, such as the ringlets in her hair, which pick up the the trunks of the trees just to her to her right. And so there is this sense from the first through the second through the third portrait in this little subsection of the exhibition that 
people are moving to a gradual accommodation of the commodification, the possibility of the commodification of the natural world through human agency, which is just what the Boardman family did in, in making this town of New Milford out of what had been, from their perspective, this untamed wilderness. There is, as one might expect in a, a broad survey of American painting and landscape painting, a section of classic American 19th century landscape escape paintings, Cole, Church, and, and, and so on. One of them is, is your own Fitzhenry Lane of a ship in fog in, in Gloucester Harbor. It's a lovely painting. It's slightly unusual for Lane in that there's visible atmosphere, which is a horrible phrase I'll never use again. It's, it's a super painting. What work does it do here for you? Well, that is arguably my favorite painting in the show, I, I think, in part because I was fortunate enough to be able to acquire it for our collection a couple of years ago. It, I think, is a wonderful example of how landscape painting after Bierstadt, after Church, after the great sort of theatrical productions of the Civil War era really played itself out in a sense. And the notion of representing sublime America in a political sense as embodiment of manifest destiny really was no longer so much at issue. The the lane you mentioned is is installed right next to a painting that in many ways couldn't be more different. It's a huge Bierstadt, also from our collection, of Mount Adams. And that is a work that was done uh, almost as a travel poster to induce uh, settlement on what was then the Western frontier. But Mount Adams is already almost on the Pacific coast. So at a certain point, the cultural work of landscapes like that, of, of inducing uh, settlement, was no longer really at issue because that was a foregone conclusion. And so an artist like Lane, I think, is interesting in that he is interested, even in the works that are not so atmospheric as as this one is, in not so much subject pictures, so to speak. In other words, not painting this mountain or that mountain or that grand thing as against the other, but rather with relationships. So you can almost imagine with just about any lane painting, shifting the canvas a little bit left, a little bit right, even up or down. And in a sense, it wouldn't matter that much because they're not subject pictures per se. What they're about, I think, ultimately is is connections and the relationships of the things in them, of, in the case of our painting, the sun working on the fog of the the boats on the tide, of the ebb and flow of the tide, of the movement of the few figures across the water in a rowboat uh, in the painting. So it's really about flux and change and mutability. And that, in its way, is ecological. It's sort of a proto-ecological painting, I think. And the role it serves in the show is just to indicate that this is a way forward, I think, for some landscape painters at a time when there was not an obvious route to go once all of those big machine canvases had sort of done their thing and played their part. The conflicts between industrialization and the conversion of forests into agricultural fields 
is something that concerns writers and artists as early as the late 1830s and 40s, Thoreau and Cole, probably most notably. So a little later on, the landscape conservation idea is born in San Francisco and implemented at Yosemite in 1863, 4, and 5. And by the end of the 19th century, we see artists looking even more explicitly at the using up of American land than Cole had half a century earlier. Sometimes it's in the corners or in the distance of a coal painting. But by Winslow Homer's A Huntsman and Dogs, it's uh, a very different story. Um, what is the story Homer is 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 telling? And is there a progression of land abuse or overuse coming into American art, or is it pretty sudden? I think the artistic recognition of it comes fairly suddenly, although it's not something that, as you say, is a sudden event. But I think the engagement with it artistically doesn't really happen until it's well underway. You mentioned coal, and I would say that we have a section on coal in the show, uh, three iconic works by him from three different periods of his career. And we actually argue really against the grain with him. There was very compelling presentation of his work recently at the Met and in London, and uh, it hewed to the conventional or traditional, let's say, apprehension of his work and uh, the view that he was a kind of proto-environmentalist. And we actually argue against that in the exhibition on the evidence, we think, of his paintings as against his writings. In his writings, he was an avowed uh, foe of progress and of Jacksonian development. But if you look at the trajectory of the works that he painted over the course of his brief career from the mid-1820s until just before mid-century, you can see something different at work in his artistic production, such that his early paintings, represented by the snow squall in our show, show a kind of sublime, unpeopled wilderness, which is not conducive to any sort of development. And if you move forward to mid-career in a work like The Great Crawford Notch, also in the show, which we have compared to a great preparatory sketch from our collection, from a sketchbook we have for that same work, you can see in comparing the sketch to the finished painting how Cole was working to meliorate the ravages of the axe, as he famously decried it, in taking many of the tree-cut stumps, or, or rather human-cut stumps, that he shows in the sketch, and making them instead storm-blasted trunks in the finished painting, and really downplaying the role of the human in almost as if nature were doing the clearing for us. And he does similar things with the buildings in the painting, which are toned down in size and more hid behind foliage and separated. So I think in a way against his writings, he's beginning to recognize the inevitability of accommodating man and nature, so to speak, and, and, and the human incursion into the natural world. And I think he's trying to sort through how that might be viable as an aesthetician, how he might be able to make art about 
something that he found in many ways abhorrent as his writings show. And the final work in this three-part grouping is one of his last paintings from 1848, which is uh, Home in the Woods. And it shows a kind of fantasy of settlement in which there is a log cabin perched at the edge of a lake and surrounded by uh, unpeopled wilderness. And the notion that sort of Jeffersonian yeomen were going to settle the country by making farms and, and eventually building cities is nowhere shown in this painting. It's rather, as I say, a kind of fantasy of how settlement might happen, but it is one that wasn't really viable. We would have a country of 800 people if if everyone settled in that way. There, there's, a, there's a cow in that painting with absolutely nowhere to graze. It's, it's an oddity. Uh, right. Yeah. So I think he, he struggled to make peace with this onslaught, this unceasing tide of change that as a as an aesthetically minded person he didn't like but as an artist i think he tried to find a way to accommodate and he also had to sell his paintings and to make paintings that looked like the writing would have been a fairly unappealing prospect and unmarketable. And it's also true that many of his patrons were the very people who were responsible for the railroads and the mines and, and the various sort of degradations of the environment that I think he was trying to find a way to accommodate in his, his work. But then jumping forward to someone like Homer, at the tail end of the century, Huntsman and Dogs is from the 1890s. In that, there's a portrayal of queer environmental despoliation in, in, the, in two ways, really. The, the huntsman is not a sportsman, but rather a market hunter and is depicted with just the skin of the deer that he and the head of the deer that he has killed and not any of the meat. And so the idea is that he was taking for the market just what he wanted. And that was not something that was seen as sportsmanlike. But more to the point is that behind him is this sort of moonscape of deforestation which is at once very general in the background of the painting, but really comes to a, a very powerful point in the two highly articulated stumps that are in the foreground of the painting, and which, if you look at the painting, you can see are, are mirrored in the shapes of the hounds that uh, the huntsman is accompanied by. And I think the life of those animals are juxtaposed against the death of the trees in a way that becomes very powerful and was Homer's, I think, indictment of that kind of clear-cutting, which was happening in the Adirondacks, where Homer uh, spent a lot of time as a sportsman and where he was active in efforts to set aside what became the Adirondack preserve, which is several times the size of Yellowstone and was so important. It was written into the constitution of the state of New York when it, when it happened. Skipping ahead a bit, there's a section here called Land Ethics and Aesthetics, which could and, and, and probably someday will be its own exhibition. 
Are you arguing that in aestheticizing and making beautiful what humans have have done to the land in works like 1930s, classic 1930s Dorothea Lange's or Noguchi's Tortured Earth, that artists are making the abuse of land and environment visually attractive and thus more palatable? I guess I would say, in a way, on the contrary, I'm not sure that the point of some of those works was to be beautiful as much as it was to be, let's say, compelling. That section of the show is about how the human hand in environmental change by the 20th century becomes impossible to ignore and at a scale infinitely greater than the localized uh, issues that people like Homer or Sanford Gifford or David Gilmore Blythe, all of whom are represented by works in the show, were contending with. Lang and Alexander Hogue, Noguchi were dealing with the Dust Bowl and nuclear war, respectively, which are environmental events that had repercussions well beyond uh, a particular river, estuary, or mountaintop, and in fact were regional in the case of the Dust Bowl and even global in the case of nuclear war, after which it might be said, and as Bill McKibben has argued, there is no more nature because cesium-37 is in every single nook and cranny of the globe uh, following the first atomic blast. There's also a section in the show about kind of the human costs of of what we've done and artists kind of reckoning with ways to to present it. Do you think that the way that artists like like Richard Mizrock or Theaster Gates or or Ed Bertinsky are making visual what we've done to the land and the landscape is in an art historical tradition that stretches back to the early 19th century in America's address of the landscape? Or do you think they're consciously trying to 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 break that narrative and to, and to show land and landscape in a different kind of more piercing pointed way? I, I think perhaps it's a little bit of both among different artists. You, you mentioned Bertinsky. Uh, we have a, a painting or rather a photograph in the show of an oil spill, uh, which was actually from the Deepwater Horizon spill about 10 years ago. And it's a beautiful, like many of his photographs, it's a beautiful thing. It's it's seductive and alluring and, and sort of luscious in a way in, in its colors and in its scale as a, as a photograph. It's a huge thing. Uh, and yet what it's showing is just the opposite, of course. And, and so there's a tension in his work, for sure, between this sort of the sublime nature of environmental degradation, which is felt as well, I think, in the Mizrock photo that's in the show of, of Cancer Alley. I think perhaps with artists like that, there is a supposition that by now people, viewers, may understand more the implications and really the global nature of 
environmental challenges that there isn't perhaps a need to be quite so, uh, let's say, overt in the way that changes to the environment are made and that they can be aestheticized in a way that doesn't undercut their meaning because I think it's more widely understood that these changes are afoot and that they're very serious and, and even, you know, globally threatening. Carl Cusero, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.